scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaon, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated, and uh, good morning. Welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, which we've been calling The World Turned Upside Down. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever the grace of Jesus Christ is embraced, things get turned upside down. Christ forms his people in such a way that the way they live is often at odds with how the world works around it. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at specific individuals for whom the gospel turned everything upside down for. But today, we're going to be talking not about an individual, but an entire church. We're talking about the church at Antioch. There's a lot of notable things that happen at the church at Antioch. Uh, You could say that the church of Antioch is one of the first truly gospel-shaped churches described fully in Acts. And that's not to say that there's no other gospel churches at this time, but this is one of the first gospel-shaped churches that the book of Acts describes in some detail. And so what were some of the characteristics of this gospel church What was going on at the church in Antioch, and what does that mean for us? Well, there are three characteristics that our text highlights that I also want to highlight this morning, and they're going to be our three points. First, exhortation. Second, formation. And third, 
fruit. And so let's begin with our first point, exhortation. When I was in middle school and high school, I ran cross-country and track, and at races, often the track or the cross-country course would be lined with people yelling and shouting at the runners. And, of course, it's a friendly yelling and shouting. They want the runners to do well. They are cheering them on. They are exhorting them, you could say. If someone is running well, if they've been running a strong race, if they're winning, then people will urge them to keep it up, to finish strong. Or if someone is not running well, if they've been struggling, then people will urge them to not give up, to pick up the pace, that it's not too late to turn things around. You know, all these people are lining the race course, exhorting the runners to either keep it up or at the very least not to give up. In our passage, the church at Antioch gets exhorted by a man named Barnabas. Uh, Verse 19 says that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And then verses 20 through 21 contrast with that and say that there were some of them, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they came to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so at Antioch, they went from just sharing the gospel with Jews to sharing it with Hellenists also, Greeks, Gentiles, and a great number started believing and turning to the Lord. And eventually, the church in Jerusalem heard about this. They heard about what was going on in Antioch, and so they sent Barnabas to go see about it. In verse 23 and 24, it says that when Barnabas came, And saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas exhorted them. And I want to focus a bit on this idea of exhorting. What does it mean that Barnabas exhorted them? What did he exhort them to do? What does it mean for us to exhort? What does it mean for us to be exhortable, if you will? And so what does it mean that Barnabas exhorted them? Well, the word that is translated exhort is parakaleo in Greek, which is a two-part word. You have Era, which means to come alongside, to be next to, to be sympathetic to. And you have kaleo, which means to call, to call out, to direct someone toward something. So there's this kind of unusual mix of dynamics. You have kaleo, the calling out or calling someone to something, which can feel a little bit assertive, almost forceful. It's a strong kind of word. Hey, you stop doing that or start doing this. That's kaleo, to call out. But para is very comforting. I'm with you in this. We're together. I sympathize. And so parakaleo, you have strength and sympathy together. You have toughness and tenderness together. It's tougher than just general encouragement. Hey, good job. Keep it up but it's also more tender than admonishment. How dare you? You know, it's different from each of these. Parakaleo, which our passage translate to exhort. So Barnabas is exhorting the church. He's exhorting them to remain faithful. 
He's saying, you're going to be tempted to slack in your faithfulness, but you must not. You must remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You're going to be tempted to get wishy-washy with your purpose, but you must not. You must remain faithful with steadfast purpose. And we're all in this together. I'm with you, the church in Jerusalem. We're with you. We're with one another. Together, let's resolve in our hearts to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, helping one another and receiving help from one another. That's Barnabas' exhortation to the church at Antioch. And it was good that he exhorted them. That's what verse 24 says. Uh, Verse 24 says that he did this because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What does someone full of the Holy Spirit and of faith do? They exhort their community to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so how do you do with exhortation? And there's two sides to this. How do you do with being the one to exhort others? And how do you do with being the one exhorted? Let's talk first about doing the exhorting. Exhorting others can be kind of scary, right? It's kind of vulnerable. You know, sometimes exhortations take place, like in our passage, when things are mostly going well. And so you say this kind of great, let's keep it up, let's resolve to continue this sort of exhortation. You know, there's maybe a bit more of the para dynamic in these instances. And that might seem like a pretty easy exhortation, and in some ways it is. But it also kind of carries an implicit slight, you know, if you will. Because you only need to tell people to keep something up or resolve to continue in such and such a way if there's a chance that they'll fail to do so in the future. You know, when you say keep it up, what's unsaid but essentially follows that phrase in parentheses is because you might not keep it up. And so even the exhortation in those situations can be a little bit vulnerable or scary. But of course, exhortation when there has been a lack of faithfulness or steadfastness will definitely be scary because there's a bit more of the kaleo coming out. Hey, we're getting off track, so let's get back on. Or, hey, we're not quite being faithful. We need to return to faithfulness. And it can be scary to be the one who recognizes the need and follows through with such an exhortation, right? That can be a bit scary. And if I'm being, you know, honest with you guys, I think in general, we're probably a little bit weak at that sort of exhortation. That's not really a strength of ours. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think one is that culturally, exhortation totally goes against the grain, because in general, in America, in our more secular and individualistic day and age, exhortation doesn't really have a place. You know, we don't really believe we're in this together. You know, the para. We think we're all just siloed off individuals and that our actions are hours and hours alone. You know, we think, how dare you speak into my life? Or what right do I have to speak into someone else's life? And so any kind of kaleo we're calling out has no place. But, you know, let me be clear, that is, that's a secular kind of thinking. That's individualistic thinking. That's not biblical thinking. That's not God's thinking when it comes to the community of faith. And we want to be formed by God, not the world, right? And God instructs his people to exhort one another, to be willing to rock the boat sometimes, to see someone doing something that's not good for them, that's not good for the community, that's not faithful to the Lord and his word, that's not remaining steadfast in purpose, and say something about it. 
to say something that's tough and tender, to say something that's sympathetic and strong. You know, I see you doing this thing or not doing this thing, and I'm worried because it's harmful for you, or it's hurting us as a community. It dishonors the Lord, and I get why you're drawn the direction you're going. I've felt that draw myself. I've been there before, but please come back to faithfulness. Please return to steadfast purpose. We'll walk with you. We're in this together. Let's remain faithful together. Let's pursue steadfast purpose together. And our community needs more moments like that. You know, actually what happens sometimes in our community is one of you tells me that I should exhort someone else. And I've done that from time to time. But really what I'm going to start saying more and more now is God gave you eyes to see that. God put it on your heart. Maybe God's calling you to exhort that person. You know, we need to be more and more willing to exhort one another, not just depend on the professional to do it. And let me assure you, if you're in Christ and belong to his church, you have a right to exhort others in that same body. God has given you that right. It's commanded, actually, because no one in the body of Christ belongs to themselves alone. We belong, first and foremost, to Christ, who bought us for a price. And because we all belong to Christ and are united to him by the same spirit, we therefore also belong to one another. And so we have every right to exhort one another. Others have every right to exhort us. And so the flip side, how do you do when someone exhorts you? Are you exhortable? You know, obviously being exhortable requires humility. You know, a willingness to admit you're mistaken or wrong or weak or misguided. But also, I think you should take encouragement when you're exhorted. Someone loves you and values you enough to speak into your life, to suggest that what you're doing is maybe not good for you or the community that you belong to, that it may put you at odds with the Lord, which is the most dangerous thing you can do, right? That's encouraging that someone cares. And so we ought not be quick to be offended when someone exhorts us. If someone in our community exhorts you, I can promise you they're shaking in their boots. They hate how they feel bringing up whatever exhortation they've brought up. And so can you look past how imperfectly they may phrase it or how awkwardly they may broach the subject and just receive the exhortation in humility? This brother or sister loves me. They mind me. They care about me. And they've acted courageously to exhort me. After all, they're just doing what Jesus did for you, right? When someone exhorts you, they're following in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus is the ultimate exhorter. He's the ultimate sympathizer who lowered himself to become just like us alongside us, the para. But Jesus is also full of strength, and he calls out. You know, on one level, there's a great strength required to call out against a sinful and rebellious world, a sinful and rebellious you. You know, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But he's even stronger than that. At an even greater level, he's strong enough to bear your sins and your rebellion by taking them to the cross. I mean, talk about parakaleo. Jesus is the ultimate exhorter. And he sends his followers, his disciples, to be his co-laborers, to be his assistant exhorters. When one of your brothers or sisters in Christ comes to exhort you, they're doing Jesus' ministry. And so be exhortable. Receive Jesus' exhortations through his body. 
And more than just mustering up the willpower to receive exhortation, be the type of person who's at the ready constantly to receive exhortation. Be formed more and more into an exhortable disciple of Christ. That takes us to our second point, formation. As you all know, or as many of you know, I am a huge fan of cycling and the Tour de France is going on in these first few weeks of July and in bike racing. There are a variety of different shapes and designs that bikes come in. You have lightweight bikes, which are designed to have a minimal amount of material and to weigh as little as possible. You also have aerodynamic bikes that might weigh a bit more, but have tubes that are shaped and designed and formed into very specific shapes so that they will quickly cut through the wind. You know, that's what they're formed to do, to be aerodynamic. And the more aerodynamic your bike is, the faster you will go on flat or downhill roads. And so a great amount of time and effort and design goes into making aerodynamic bike frames. These tubes of the frame have to be formed just right with mathematical precision in order to be aerodynamic. But once they're made into that shape, they work just as designed, basically automatically. They, riders can just ride the bike and it will cut through the air as it was formed to do and it was formed to be aerodynamic. In our passage, we read about formation, but it's not the formation of tubes on a bike frame, it's the formation of people. What's going on at the church at Antioch is formation, spiritual formation, Christian formation, people being shaped and formed into how God always meant for people to be, formed into such a shape that it's almost automatic that they live out the implications of the gospel message that they believe. The gospel forms them. The gospel shapes them. In uh, verse 25, we read that Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, the apostle Paul, and when he finds him, in verse 26, he brings him back to Antioch, and in the last half of verse 26, it says that for a whole year, Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great number of people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And so Saul and Barnabas, for a whole year, taught people at Antioch, and through that process, through that year of teaching, the text seems to be implying those disciples were eventually known as Christians. That's how that term was coined. And there's some crucial stuff going on here. You can tell just by the words of the passage. The church was taught. Disciples were made. And these disciples were called Christians. You know, through the teaching of Saul and Barnabas, which happened over a whole year, disciples were made. Disciples were formed. Christians were formed. They were shaped more and more into who God meant for his people to be. There was formation at the church at Antioch. And so what exactly is formation? How should we think about this concept of formation? Traditionally, What's going on in this passage might be referred to as spiritual formation or Christian formation, or some people might refer to it as discipleship or some component of sanctification. But the idea is essentially this. You are formable spiritually. You are formable. Like clay on a spinning wheel being shaped into pottery, you can be formed rightly, or you can be malformed, formed wrongly. 
You can be added to or taken away from. You can die more and more to sin or live more and more to righteousness. You are formable. And formation is, you know, obviously closely connected to your actions, you know, how you live day to day, but it actually goes deeper than that. It's more like your character or your integrity or your values, your objects of worship, your trusts, your allegiances. It's more about what is second nature to you. Because there's a difference between, okay, being in a situation where you're tempted to lie and you really labor over whether you're going to lie or tell the truth and you have to think about it, you recite the ninth commandment to yourself, and then you ultimately decide not to lie and you tell the truth. There's a difference between that and just naturally telling the truth automatically because you've been formed into someone who loves truth and hates lies because the gospel is so true to you and sunken so deep that truthfulness is basically automatic. And so formation is less about any specific act of obedience or sin and more about your being. It's about what type of person you're becoming. It's about becoming who you are already in Christ. And don't get me wrong. You know, when you're younger in your faith or less mature in your faith, a lot of times you're going to wrestle. We're also all weak in various areas, and we'll probably wrestle in some areas for the rest of our lives. You know, Scripture says there's a battle going on inside of you. Your flesh, your sinful nature battles against the Spirit, and that, that's the part of you that the Spirit is turning into more, a more, more Christ-like image. You know, when we sin, we've let our sinful nature win the battle, but when we obey, we've trusted the Spirit. And so it's fine that you may wrestle uh, that this battle is happening inside of you. It's significantly better to wrestle over whether to lie than to just lie. But spiritual formation, Christian formation, is a process that ought to lead us more and more to a place where we ignore and resist and hate our sinful nature and trust and obey and love more and more the Spirit. It's a, a process where trusting the Spirit becomes more and more automatic, second nature. And actually, that phrase, second nature, uh, that I've been using, um, actually, trusting the Spirit is your true nature. Formation isn't forming you into something that's less human or less natural. Formation is turning you into something that's more human, that's more natural. Following the Spirit is natural. That's how God designed us to be. Uh, but obviously, in terms of our experience, we were born in sin, and it's new to us to resist our sinful nature and trust and obey the spirit. That's why I'm using the term uh, second nature, more an experiential way than an ontological way. But that's formation. And so how is your formation going? Do you take your Christian formation seriously? Because I'll let you in on a little secret. Whether you take your formation seriously or not, you are being formed at all times. The only question is, what is forming you? And into what are you being formed? But you're being formed. There's no question. Are you being formed more and more into Christ's image by the Spirit? Or are you being formed more and more into something else by the world and the world's content makers? I mean, we literally call these people influencers because they influence. That's formation language. They're trying to form you into people for whom it is second nature to buy the product they're advertising or with news and media or entertainment, same thing is happening. It's forming you. 
What podcasts do you listen to? What TV shows and movies do you watch? Where do you get your news? Do you let an algorithm decide for you? An algorithm that isn't designed to put the best information in front of you, but is designed to hook you and set you down the rabbit hole, getting more clicks so that the media companies can charge their advertisers more. What's forming you and where you get your news or media or entertainment or any other area? I could go on, but I hope you see just how much of the world is trying to form you. And it's not trying to form you into Christ's image. If you want to be formed more and more into Christ's image, if you want to uh, be formed and formed to look more like Christ, you're going to have to take some initiative in that. I mean, obviously, it's God through the Spirit who forms you, but there are normal means of grace by which he does that forming work. You know, to reuse that clay analogy, there are spinning wheels that God is working at, and there are spinning wheels where the world is working at. Where do you want to be? Obviously, corporate worship, Sunday morning is an incredibly formative part of life, and I obviously hold it in very high regard, but it's only 75 minutes of your week. And historically, you know, spiritual formation, Christian formation has been something that's emphasized outside of the corporate worship service. You know, the whole goal of something like Sunday school, which many churches might schedule during a time slot before worship, the whole goal of that Sunday school hour is Christian formation. It's literally called school. You're supposed to be taught there like Saul and Barnabas taught for a whole year in Antioch. You're supposed to be formed there. Or, you know, when we offer a Bible study or a discipleship class or community groups or leadership classes or whatever non-worship opportunities for formation, do you take advantage of some of those? Why or why not? How do you decide? And if you don't take advantage of them, are you being formed into Christ's image more and more through something else? Or are you letting other forming powers in your life malform you into something other than Christ's image? The question, again, will never be, are you being formed? The question will always be, what or who is forming you? And into what are you being formed? Jesus wants to form you into his image. That's the literal meaning of the word Christian. Literally, Christian means little Christ. Christians are little Christ. That's who you are. That's who Jesus is forming you into, into a little Christ, into his image. Jesus wants to form you into his image so much that he actually let himself be malformed, right? Jesus was malformed so that you could be formed. Philippians 2 says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and instead emptied himself, taking instead the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Talk about malformation, right? From the form of God to the form of a servant, the form of a human. Isaiah 53 says that in his humanity, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And then he let himself be even more malformed by dying, death on a cross, his flesh torn, his body broken, his blood spilled out. That's how much Jesus wants to form you into his image. Jesus was malformed so that you could be formed. The disciples at Antioch 
are some of the first to experience that formation, to be formed into Christ's image. And when people are formed into Christ's image, there will be fruit in their community and in their individual lives. And that's exactly what we see at Antioch. And it takes us to our final point, fruit. You know, when I was doing missions work in the country of Montenegro, an interesting thing that I uh, would encounter was this idea that whatever country you were from or whatever ethnicity or nationality you were, it was directly linked to your religion. That's what many people I I talked to thought. And so because I was an American, many Montenegrins would assume that I was Roman Catholic for some reason, uh, which was odd. I'm not. Uh, But in the minds of Montenegrins, Americans are Catholics, you know. And uh, this was kind of common in their treatment and connection to other countries. You know, if you're from Montenegro, you were Orthodox. If you were Croatian, you were Catholic. If you were Bosnian, you were Muslim. If you were from Serbia, you were Orthodox. You know, in that region of the world, to say your ethnicity or to say your nationality was the same thing as saying your religion, essentially. They were directly linked. In our passage, it mentions in verse 26 that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, And this is significant and touches on one of the fruits of the church at Antioch that we're going to talk about. Um, This one of the first fruits I want to talk about is diversity. In chapter 13, verse 1, it names several leaders in the church at Antioch. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These are leaders of the church at Antioch. And we have two ethnic Jews, one of them a former Pharisee. We have two Africans, one of them a black African. And we have a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so someone connected to the ruling class. It's a diverse mix of leaders. And we know the church had a diverse mix of church members in general, too, made up of Jews and Hellenists, Greeks, Gentiles which is why they were first called Christians at Antioch, because the other normal identifiers that the people had were no longer helpful when it came to people who trust in Jesus, who believed the gospel. Because for the most part at that time, just like how it was when I was in Eastern Europe, you could just say your ethnicity or your nationality, and people would know your religion. But with the church at Antioch, and as the gospel was spreading from non-Jews to Gentiles, it became unhelpful to just say someone's nationality or, ethnic- or ethnicity. And so the word Christian started to appear because the best way to describe this conglomerate of people, this diverse group, this new community that was forming, was a new term entirely. And so at Antioch, the disciples of Jesus Christ are to be called Christians. That was the simplest way to describe them. They're little Christs. They follow this guy, Jesus. They're Christians. And obviously, this is a word that, you know, hasn't gone away. We still use the word Christian today to describe people who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. And this all flowed from the fruit of diversity in Antioch. And uh, the application for us is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. We ought to be more Christian than whatever our race or culture or ethnicity or nationality is. They're not mutually exclusive. That's the beauty of the diversity of the people of God. We don't lose our ethnic or cultural background when we become Christians, but we do now have an identity that is greater than our ethnicity or culture. We have an allegiance to other Christians that goes higher than our allegiance to our own race or culture. You know, two Christians of completely different ethnic or cultural backgrounds ought to have a tighter bond than one Christian with someone else of the same ethnic or cultural background who's not a Christian. This is just a manifestation of the spiritual reality that all Christians are united to Christ through the same spirit and therefore united to one another. 
And so at Antioch, they were first called Christians because of the gospel fruit of diversity. It's the first fruit. Second fruit is mercy. In uh, verses 27 through 30, it says that there was a great famine that affected the entire world. But most likely, it, that just means the entire empire because they kind of had a limited grasp of how, the wor- how far the world went at this point. But there's a famine. It's affecting the whole empire. And uh, it's, you know, it's a shortage of food, years with poor harvests. And so what did the church at Antioch do? Verses 29 and 30 say that the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so, sending it uh, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And don't forget, Antioch was also likely affected by the famine, but they still had mercy on the brothers and sisters in Judea and collected food that they could and sent it to them in mercy. They sent relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. And this is a very natural fruit of the gospel in our lives. We have been the recipients of mercy. We have received relief from Christ. When we were spiritually famished, Christ provided nourishment. When we were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Christ had compassion on us. He is our ultimate relief. And people who have been relieved by Christ, people who have received mercy, are formed by that mercy, and it forms them into people who naturally see when others are in need of mercy or relief. It forms them into people who are willing to provide relief and mercy, even when things are a little bit tight for you, too. At Antioch, the disciples of Jesus were merciful. That's the second fruit we see. And then finally, the third fruit, a spirit of sending. Back to uh, chapter 13, verses 2 through 3. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church at Antioch sent out Barnabas and Saul. I bet they really wanted them to stay, right? They probably loved the whole year that they were teaching and discipling and forming them. But a time came when the Holy Spirit said, I have more work for Barnabas and Saul to do elsewhere. And how did the church at Antioch respond? Did they say, no, 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 you can't leave. We won't let you leave. You have to stay. No. Did they say, let the last Sunday that you're here pass by quietly and pretend like nothing's happening. Have Saul and Barnabas just sneak out the back door. No. They acknowledged the Holy Spirit's calling. They fasted and prayed and laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and sent them off. They had a spirit of sending, an acknowledgement that if people need to go, it's because the Holy Spirit is calling them. And, you know, we ought to have that same spirit of sending, too. And look, I know that this is not abstract or theoretical to us. We've seen many people be sent elsewhere since the pandemic began. And, you know, I want to address the two sides of this. On the one hand, if God calls you somewhere else, tell us. Let us pray for you. Let us send you off in a spiritually and emotionally healthy way. If you don't want to be prayed for and sent off, you have to at least ask the question, is it the Holy Spirit calling you away? Because if the Holy Spirit's calling you away, then there's no problem with us sharing in that with you and the rest of the body praying for you and sending you off in the Spirit. But on the other hand, the Holy Spirit calls someone among us to a work that is elsewhere. We ought to agree with the Holy Spirit and pray for them and send them off. 
And that doesn't mean that those sendings aren't sad or difficult. You know, when Paul is sent again from a different church, the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, it says that there was much weeping. They embraced Paul. They kissed him. You know, scripture doesn't say that sendings have to be without weeping. Or another emotion that often accompanies sending people to what the Holy Spirit has called them to is fear. Well, what about us? Am I going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Are we going to be provided for? You know, what's going to happen now that Saul and Barnabas have been sent away? Lord, are you going to send anyone else to us? The Church of Antioch might be asking. I'm sure we've asked similar questions. Lord, are you going to send anyone to us? He already has. The Lord has sent his son to us. He sent Jesus. And you might be like, yeah, 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 he sent his son, I get it, but I'm talking about a real person. There's no one more real than Jesus. Let Jesus be more real to you than some human. You don't need some human. You need Jesus, and God sent him. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Romans eight thirty two. he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You don't need some human to be sent. You need Jesus, and God has already sent him for you. God gave him up for you. And Jesus is actually going to be sent again for you at the end of the age. And so you have everything you need. God sent Jesus for you. He gave him up for you. He's sending him again for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you did send your son, that you gave him up for us. Father, we pray that Jesus would be the most real person in our lives, that he be more real to us than anyone else. Father, we confess that when Jesus is a little bit less real, we have all sorts of struggles. We struggle to exhort and be exhortable. We struggle to let ourselves be formed more by you than the world. But Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, form us more and more into your image, that we would bear gospel fruit in our lives. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.